Now, the greatest radio shows of all time. Suspense. The Shadow Node. Washington calling David Harding, counter-spy. Classic radio theater. The Great Gildersleeve. Fibber McGee and Molly. Dragnet. Gunsmoke. The Lone Ranger. Now, step back into a time machine with your host, Wyatt Cox. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. We head back 70 years for an episode of the Signal Oil program, The Whistler. Howard McNear starring in an episode entitled Homecoming. And we thank you for tuning in on this Wednesday. You know what that means. Wednesday, hump day, 30th day of March, 89th day of the year, 276 days remaining until we get to 2023. Florida Territory, created in the U.S. on this date in 1822. Anesthesia, used for the first time on this date in 1842. A pencil with an attached eraser was patented on this date in 1858. Alaska, purchased on this date in 1867. uh, $7.2 million, about two cents an acre, by Secretary of State William Seward. The news media called Alaska Seward's folly. That was before they found out there was a lot of oil up there or or rather, whether they would even, you know, have any idea what to use the oil for. 1867, there were not much in the way of automobiles. Uh, in 1910, the Mississippi Legislature founded the University of Southern Mississippi in 1910. The King and I premiered on Broadway on this date in 1951. Oh, good morning, Your Majesty. You think you teach King lesson, but this is one lesson you do not be paid for teaching. In the future, you will stop instructing wives and children in silly English song, Home Sweet House. In order to remind me of breaking promises I never make, etc., etc., etc. Yule Brenner and Gertrude Lawrence starred in The King and I on Broadway, opening on this date in 1951. Merv Gertz, the game show Jeopardy! made its debut on television on this date in 1964. Art Fleming hosted the original version. And uh, President Ronald Reagan shot on this date in 1981 in the chest outside a Washington, D.C. hotel by John Hinckley, Jr. Shots rang out as President Reagan was leaving the hotel and about to enter his limousine. At least one person was hit and fell to the sidewalk with blood coming from his body. It was not the president. I don't know whether the president was hit. I do not believe he was. His car left rapidly under police escort. The shots were fired by someone in the crowd of people watching the president depart. Now, as the events were breaking on that date in 1981, Secretary of State Al Haig spoke to the media at the White House. As of now, I am in control here in the White House, pending return of the Vice President, and in in close touch with him. If something came up, I would check with him, of course. Now, considering that Vice President Bush was not immediately available, Haig's statement reflected political reality, if not necessarily legal reality. So... You know, just to let you know that uh, Haig uh, had a whole bunch of other things that basically got him booted from his position in uh, the uh, Reagan administration. In 1982, STS-3 mission completed the landing of Columbia Space Shuttle in New Mexico. In 2017, SpaceX conducted the world's first reflight of an orbital class rocket. 
number of people passing away on this date in history. Among those, the original Great Gildersleeve, Harold Perry, uh, passing away of a heart attack on this date in 1985. Also, radio commentator Gabriel Heater, actor uh, Jimmy Cagney, the uh, husband of Lucille Ball, Gary Morton. Also, born a journalist, Alistair Cook, singer Timmy Euro, a stand-up comedian Mitch Hedberg, musician Bill Withers, Lean on Me, and uh, G. Gordon Liddy, who passed away last year. This is the birth date of Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh, uh, British musician and band leader Ted Heath, singer Frankie Lane, Mule Train, and Randy Van Warmer, Just When I Needed You Most. All born on this date. The man in charge of the Hollywood Squares, Peter Marshall, 96 years old today. One of the last standing of the great game show hosts. Gomez from the Adams Family, John Aston, 92. Rolf Harris, Timey Kangaroo Down Sport, 92 years old. Warren Beatty is 85. Eric Clapton, Tears in Heaven, 77. From My Two Dads and Mad About You, Paul Reiser is 66. MC Hammer, 60. Tracy Chapman, 58. From 90210, Ian Zerling is 58. Presenter T. Piers Morgan is 57. TV host is what that means. Uh, from Baywatch, Donna Dierko is 54. Celine Dion, also 54 today. And Tim Hawkins, 54 years of age. So a while back, I put out a Facebook post asking people for ideas of Christian cuss words. I got over uh, 10,000 responses from you freaks. <laughs> now, none of these is for me. You can't put it on me. Over 10,000 from you bozos. It took me two weeks to go through them, and I, and I whittled it down to about 100 or so Christian alternative cuss words that you could use. I haven't memorized it yet, but I'd like to recite it for you right now. So Christians, just take these and uh, cuss up a storm. <laughs> Listen up. Here we go. Shucks, rats, gadzooks, shizzle, toot. Crapola. Which I guess is Spanish for crap. I don't know. Crapola. You almost stepped in Crapola. <laughs> or it's the worst crayon color ever. <laughs> hey, who's got the Crapola over here? Trying to draw a tree trunk. I need to stop taking my Crapola. Tim Hawkins, a funny, funny guy. Tim Hawkins, 54 years old today. A uh, couple of musicians to round everything out. Uh, Nora Jones, 43. Anna Nalick is 38. And country's Thomas Rhett is 32. Those just a few of the people who celebrate the 30th day of March is their birthday. And if this happens to be your birthday... Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, happy birthday. Howard McNair, starring in an episode of The Whistler from 70 years ago today, March 30th, 1952, this episode entitled Homecoming. I'm Wyatt Cox. Thanks for joining us on this Wednesday edition of Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox here on your favorite radio station. 
Thanks for tuning in on this Wednesday edition of Classic Radio Theater here on your favorite station. An episode of the Signal Oil program, The Whistler. We have mentioned before that The Whistler was primarily heard on the west coast of the United States, except for, I think it was two runs nationally. Uh, and they were basically summer runs or short runs uh, on the whole CBS network. Uh, this was basically the West Coast CBS network that aired these programs. So this episode from 70 years ago, March 30th, 1952, Howard McNair in the lead role, the episode entitled Homecoming. And now stay tuned for the mystery program that is unique among all mystery programs. Because even when you know who is guilty... You always receive a startling surprise at the final curtain. In the Signal Oil program, The Whistler. Signal, the famous go-farther gasoline, invites you to sit back and enjoy another strange story by The Whistler. Whistler, and I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. And now for the Signal Oil Company, the Whistler's strange story, Homecoming. car speeds up a dark country road, barely ahead of the gathering storm. At the crest of the hill, the driver swings wildly in to stop before a rambling farmhouse. Quickly he's out, stumbling up the steps and across the creaking porch. Once inside, John Aaron scurries breathlessly to each door and window, slamming and locking them. But it's not the storm that holds terror for you, is it, John? No. You're sure that a far greater danger lies in the few brief hours ahead. It wasn't always like this, was it, John? The once proud farm and its family that fell gradually into decay, till only you and your younger stepbrother, Robert, remained. Robert was the stronger, wild and unruly. But not you, John. No, you've always been known as a stern, righteous man. But now only one thing is important, isn't it? You're certain that Robert is coming home. Now, as you sit back to wait, your mind goes back to the day when it all began. You'd watched as the sheriff and his deputies came. John! John, are you home? He's not the one we want, Sheriff. Well, good morning, Sheriff. Good morning, John. What's the meaning of this? Uh, well, I uh, I guess you wouldn't exactly call this a social visit. Well, I gathered as much. What do you want? 
No need for talk. Come on, we'll start with the house. Okay, Charlie. Nobody sets foot in my house without the right. Now, wait, wait, wait. Now, hold on, boys. Hold on. Now, there's no need of that. Then let him tell us where Robert is. I don't account for my stepbrother. He's not here. John, I, uh, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I've known you and Robert since you were knee-high to grasshoppers. Just what are you trying to say, Sheriff? Well, uh, folks are getting mighty upset about Jed Peters. He hasn't been seen since he came here to your place three days ago. He had plenty of money with him, too. Jed was going to buy this farm. He never did trust banks. I wasn't planning to sell. It was Robert's idea. Well, uh, Jed's horse showed up at home without him. That's all we know. Well, I know nothing of Jed Peters. Now, why did you come here, Sheriff? Well, I just thought you might help, John. You don't mind if we sort of look around? For Jed Peters? On my farm? No, 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 no. There's no offense to you. It's a job to be done. Uh, of course, we've got a warrant. Oh, I see. You didn't need one. <laughs> I'm not one to stand in the way of the law. Oh, no, of course you are, John. After all, you're the last one we'd suspect of anything. <laughs> So you'd followed the sheriff and the others, hadn't you, John? Seemingly bewildered as they searched the house, the loft, the outbuildings. You'd kept your silence. Until finally, down the hill, buried in a shallow grave in a grove of willows, they had found the shattered body of Jed Peters. You appeared quite shocked, didn't you, John? Hardly knew what to say. And don't surprise us none, Sheriff. We knew what we'd find. All right, all right, boys. I'll leave John Aaron and me alone. Suit yourself. But if you don't get it out of him, we will. You're right. Sheriff, you... They don't think I had anything to do with it. You know better than that, John. Nobody's accusing you. Well, I just can't understand it. Now, uh, I know how you feel. But if there's anything you can tell me now, uh... About Robert. Oh, hold on, Sheriff. Not Robert. Where is he, John? Well, I don't know. He just disappeared three days ago. Left without saying a word. Hmm. Same day Jed and his money disappeared? Oh, Sheriff. Robert wouldn't steal or kill. Mm -hmm. Plenty of folks saw Robert and Jed quarrel in the village. Robert made plenty of threats. Robert never could hold his tongue. But you can't be sure. No. No. But it looks like Robert's in trouble. A heap of trouble. Yes, John, you carried it off very well, didn't you? For only you know the real truth That you killed Jed Peters Killed him in desperation for his money Still hidden safely inside the house Where you haven't dared touch it since It was so fortunate Robert's going away when he did It seemed an admission of his guilt and after they found him in the city, you had plenty of time to lay your plans. You made a point to be at the sheriff's office when he brought Robert back. All right, in here, Robert. John. Hello, Robert. Is that all you've got to say? Suppose we set this thing straight. What can I say, now? Just tell them their mistake. That's all you have to do. Robert denies everything, John. Kind of suspected he would. Well, why shouldn't I deny it? I don't know what anybody's talking about. Then tell us, Robert, why you went away so quickly without letting anybody know. John can tell you. He knew I was going. I went off to get a decent job. Uh-huh. Right at the time Jed was killed, after you threatened him. I threatened Jed? Sure I did. The old miser had John and me where he wanted us. He knew we needed the money. 
Yes, but we didn't need it that bad, Robert. Oh, stop it, John. You knew I was going. You were licked even if you wouldn't admit it. I was sick and tired of living with nothing but failure and decay. I couldn't face it anymore, that's all. Well, I you told me that before. Because it's true. Why don't you tell him, John? Why don't you tell him the truth? I can't defend murder, Robert. Even though we grew up... Oh, I do. Tell him the truth before Robert, I beat Robert, it out of you. Robert, stop. Oh, tell him now. Get back there, Robert. Get back there. Uh, you won't get a chance to do that again. Uh, John, you all right, John? Well, well, what happens to me doesn't matter. Don't hold this against Robert, Sheriff. He already has enough to answer for. You were so forgiving, weren't you, John? Through the days that followed, you'd walk with head bowed, bearing alone the humiliation. And all through the trial, you felt the sympathetic eyes of everyone on you. Robert sat tight-lipped not once taking his cold eyes off you as the evidence piled up against him. Then, when you were called to the stand. <laughs> Mr. Aaron, I know this is difficult for you, but try and remember when you first realized that Robert was gone. Well, I, I've sworn to tell the truth. There's nothing else I can do now. You mean there's something more? Yes, much more. I'm ready now to tell everything. Please, 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 please go on. Well, I'd been away all that day. When I drove in the gate that evening, I... I heard a shot. From where? From back of the house. I ran around the house fast as I could and saw Robert standing there with his shotgun in his hands. Jed Peters was on the ground. Dead. Mr. Aaron. Mr. Aaron. In spite of the fact that you know you'll be held to account for protecting a murderer, you still swear that this is true? I do. I felt I had to protect him and the family name. What did you do then? I helped him bury Jed. And then I begged Robert to go away as far as he could. Did he tell you about the money? I don't know about any money. I'd tell if I did. I, I've lied enough. I feel I was partly to blame. If only I'd been kinder to Robert in our trouble, a little more understanding. Robert Aaron, did you or did you not shoot and kill Jed Peters? I did not. But you've heard what my righteous stepbrother said. You believe him. But there's nothing more for me to say. I'm asking you now. You realize this is your last chance? I've got nothing more to say. And so the trial was quickly over. And after that, the inevitable verdict. Robert was found guilty. Sentenced to from ten years to life. All as you planned it, John. And as the sheriff led Robert from the courtroom... Come along, Robert. Without telling my grieving stepbrother goodbye, Sheriff? Well, all right if he wants it. Only for a minute, though. Well, John? Goodbye, Robert. It's too bad it had to be this way. Don't worry yourself too much. I'll come back someday, John. And when I do, you can count on one thing. There'll be another trial for murder. 
I double-checked, and I was basically right. Uh, the, the Whistler ran nationally uh, in one summer session, July to September of 1946, sponsored by Campbell's Soup, and from March 1947 to September 1948, so I guess that's a year and a half, sponsored by Household Finance. The Whistler, from March 30th, 1952, on Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. We'll have the news items from the newspapers from 70 years ago today and the conclusion of The Whistler. But first, these important messages. And you're listening to Classic Radio Theater here on your favorite station, an episode of The Whistler. Homecoming, starring Howard McNear as it was broadcast Sunday, March 30th, 1952, in the newspapers of that Sunday, 70 years ago. These were some of the headlines. The nation in shock last night as President Truman announced he would not be a candidate for re-election. He electrified the annual Jefferson-Jackson Day dinner at the National Guard Armory in Washington by declaring, I shall not be a candidate for re-election. A chorus of no's broke out among the 5,000 Democrat politicians as the historic pronouncement was made. It came as an off-the-cup interpolation in his prepared address, which had contained no intimation of his intentions, the chief executive saying, I do not believe it is my duty to spend another term in the White House. A second before that, he had declared, I have served my country long, and I believe efficiently and honestly. Although the announcement took most of the diners by supplies, several cabinet members at the speaker's table appeared unastonished. One of the most intensive political campaigns in history came to a climax last night with major appeals from all three principal Republican candidates battling for votes in the Wisconsin primary. The election is next Tuesday. Governor Earl Warren, Senator Howard Robert A. Taft, and ex-Governor Harold E. Stassen of Minnesota, the main GOP contenders for 30 delegates, to the July nominating convention. The threat of a steel strike on April 8th still hung over the nation, but some officials were hopeful it would be averted. Cheap hope for avoiding it rested on producer union talks starting in New York Monday. These talks led Secretary of Labor Tobin to predict Saturday night that no strike will take place and steel production will continue uninterrupted until mid-1953 at least. General Eisenhower may make a flying farewell tour in the next six weeks to the capitals of the U.S.'s European allies. Officers at the Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers in Europe Saturday said it's a possibility. Guessing is that Eisenhower, a candidate for the Republican presidential nomination, will resign his command sometime in late May and return to the United States. Angry protests against Italy's newly stiffened demands for return of olive free trees were raised Saturday night on the floor of Yugoslavia's parliament and in mass street demonstrations. Thumping the speaker's desk, Representative Valor Ubik told his fellow legislators that the Italian campaign has been promoted by fascist bands and I would like to meet them face to face with a gun in my hand. And from Italy, Rodolfo Dona, 25, suffering from arthritis and insomnia, took an overdose of sleeping pills Friday night. Then he turned on the gas. Then he tried to shoot himself in the temple, but he was so sleepy from the sleeping pills that he missed. While the noise of the shot rousted relatives who rushed him to hospital, and he's recovering. 
Though some of the day's top news stories as reported in the newspapers of Sunday, March 30th, 1952, on your radio, The Whistler, Homecoming, starring Howard McNair, which continues now on Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. It's hard to realize that it all happened only three years ago, isn't it, John? Robert convicted of murder. Your own testimony had sealed the verdict. And only Robert himself suspicioned that it was actually you who had killed Jed Peters. And after three years, you're still unable to forget that last day in the courtroom. Robert's threat of vengeance. And your conversation later with the sheriff. You'll be wanting me now, Sheriff. Wanting you, John? Well, I'm a criminal. As much as Robert, I shielded him, knowing his guilt. Well, I... I kind of think it's Robert you'd better be concerned about. Every man has a cross. Well, Robert's mine. Yes, I I know how you feel. It seems like just yesterday I used to visit your old place when we were kids. (laughs) Had a lot of fun together as boys. Uh, We'd best forget it. But, John, what I'm trying to say is... Yes, Sheriff? I don't like the way Robert looked at you when you testified against him. There was hate in his eyes, John. Downright hate. Oh, he'll have plenty of time to think things over. And realize that what I did was right and honorable. Well, I hope so. But Robert was never one to forget a grudge. You're no match for him, John. Well, I'll be going now. Well, uh, is there anything I can do? No. I just want to be left alone from now on. been charges brought against you, but quickly dropped. And through the past three years, you had withdrawn more and more, living with your guilt, not once visiting Robert at the penitentiary, only a few hours away. Time and again, you told yourself that you were perfectly safe, hadn't you, John? Until word came only an hour ago that Robert had escaped in a prison break this morning. Yes, Robert is free to make good his threat. Now there's nothing to do but wait in your dark house. Listen to the rising storm and the bump of the oak limb on the roof. You start at the jangle of the phone that echoes through the high rooms. You tell yourself not to answer. It could be Robert making sure you're home. And you breathe with relief when it stops. Again, you check each door and window. Then you sit in a chair facing the door trying to stem the flood of memories and voices that return like a nightmare. Why don't you tell him, John? Why don't you tell him the truth? There was hate in his eyes, John. Downright hate. You're no match for him. I'll come back, John. And when I do, you can count on one thing. There'll be another trial for murder. Yes, John. You're sure these past three years have only added to his hatred. Robert's determination to come back regardless of the consequences. To kill or be killed. And now that he's escaped in a prison break, you decide to wait for him. Kill him as you kill Jed Peters. All in uh, self-defense. End your fear and worry once and for all. But as time goes on, you begin to wonder, don't you, John? You wonder if Robert might not be nearby. You go to the window. 
throw it open. Close the shutters. Slam and lock the window. Then you go back to your chair. Resume the endless waiting. You wonder whether your fears were groundless. You feel a surge of hope that Robert may have decided to postpone his vengeance. Go far away to start a new life somewhere else. Again the phone. This time, it doesn't stop. Uh, hello? Hello. Uh, who is it? That's you, John. Can't hear you very well. Speak up. Oh, who's calling? It's Charlie uh, Briscoe up the road. Not surprised you don't recognize me. Been a long time since you've seen Oh, yes, Charlie, of course. How are you? Oh, tolerable. Quite a storm we're having, isn't it? Well, they, they come and go. Uh, oh. What do you want? Oh, nothing special. Just a neighborly call. Sort of wondered how you were making out. I'm making out, Charlie. I was just saying to Sarah last week, we ought to have you over. It's not good for a man to be alone all the time like you are. Uh, I guess you are alone. Well, of course I'm alone. Any reason for you to think different? Well, no, not exactly. Of course, I guess you heard about the prison break, Robert's escape. Oh, everybody's heard. There's nothing I can do about it. Oh, nobody's blaming you. Guess the last place an escaped convict would go to is in his own house. Well, Robert's just a stepbrother. I'm not one to harbor a criminal. Of course you're not, John. Besides, it might be just a rumor. Robert's been heading this way, though. Well, who saw him? I don't know. You know how talk gets around. It could be a mistake. Is that why you called, Charlie? No, John. I never was one to pry, you know. Of course, there's the money that was never found. He'll likely hit for that wherever it is. Not back to your place. Um, goodbye, Charlie. From 70 years ago, March 30th, 1952, The Whistler on Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. On Thursday's Classic Radio Theater, we go back 68 years to March 31st, 1954, Willard Waterman as the great Gildersleeve. Gildersleeve is stating, is dating rather two different girls, Exotic Marie and his old standby Grace Tuttle. And don't you know that's going to cause some issues? That'll be on Thursday's Classic Radio Theater, The Great Gildersleeve. But right now, the conclusion of The Whistler from 70 years ago, March 30th, 1952. Well, John, the rumor that Robert has been seen doesn't surprise you, does it? You're certain he's on his way to see you, to try and kill you. But you'll be more than ready for him, won't you, John? You outwitted him three years ago. You're sure you can do it again. Rifle in hand, you sit facing the big front door. Waiting. Waiting. The grandfather clock in the hallway strikes off another hour. And still you wait. And then... A voice, John. Or was it? You wonder if it was just the wind. You strain to hear. There's nothing more. Then... You start as you hear the shutters rattling in the wind. You remember there's a back door, too, and you decide to cover that entrance. Set a trap for Robert. You walk to the kitchen. Take your other rifle from its place on the wall. Anchor it securely to a chair so that it points directly toward the back door. You tie a string to the doorknob, the other end to the rifle trigger. Loop the string over the back of the chair. 
so that when Robert opens the back door, the rifle will be discharged. You leave the kitchen and return to the front of the house, where once again you sit, rifle in hand, watching that front door. But as the minutes drag by, a feeling of fear begins to overcome you. You wish you hadn't hung up on Charlie Briscoe when you did, that you'd suggested he drive over, help out in case Robert arrives and attempts to carry out his threat to kill you. You decide to phone him again. Number, please. Oh, operator, I want you to get me Charlie Briscoe, 136, quick as you can. 136. I'll ring him. Oh, operator, hurry, will you? I'm ringing. Well, keep it up. I've got to get to him. must not be home. There's no answer. Oh, I'm sure he's home. I just talked to him. Ring him again. Keep on. Miss Briscoe doesn't hear so well, you know. This is Mr. Aaron, isn't it? Yes, John Aaron. Maybe you're ringing the wrong number. No. This is right. Is there something wrong, Mr. Aaron? Get him, Arthur. Just get him. I'm doing the best I can. Uh, uh, hello. Uh, uh. The phone's dead. You're certain this is Robert's way to cut the lines and make his return safe and sure. You try to call out, but your voice strangles in your throat. The sound of the branches of the oak tree just outside the house brings another memory, doesn't it, John? How as boys, you and Robert had often scaled the tree, climbed across the roof to an unsealed hatch leading into the attic. Rush up the winding stairs. Open the door to the now empty attic. You're just in time, aren't you? You hear the sound of someone moving on the roof. The steps come closer. The hatch is drawn back. A head appears. Then the shoulders. You aim quickly. It's too bad, Robert. You should have known if I killed once, I can kill again. You rush back downstairs, open the front door, and hurry to the figure huddled on the ground. Determined to end the threat of Robert for all time. Oh, oh. I'm sorry, Robert. Sorry it has to be this way. No, no, John. I'm not Robert. What you... Sheriff! It's you! Yes. Yes, I, I didn't see any light. But I... I thought something was wrong. I remembered about the roof when we were kids. I, I didn't know, Sheriff. I swear I didn't. I thought you were Robert. Come back to kill me, and now I... No, no, no. It's... All right, Sheriff. Your aim wasn't too good. Oh. Just my shoulder. Oh, my God. Well, if you... I'll help you here. Right. I'll get you to your car. I'll find help. No. Easy oh. now. The phone's gone out here, but I'll get you over to Charlie Briscoe's place. Right. You'll phone Doc Wilson from there. He'll take care of you. Yes, thanks, Joe. I shouldn't have fired so quick, but Robert isn't one to wait. It, it was him or me, Sheriff. I know, John. I know. Don't worry about it. I've got a hunch they'll get Robert before he gets here.
It's going all right, isn't it, John? You put the sheriff in your car, rush him to Charlie Briscoe's farm, where Briscoe tells you he's just heard on the radio that Robert, hiding in a wooded section of hills near your farm, is completely surrounded. His capture a matter of minutes. You breathe a sigh of relief. Wait only long enough to make sure the doctor is on his way to take care of the sheriff. And then quickly excuse yourself. You decide the best thing for you to do is take what's left of the money you took when you killed Jed Peters three years ago. Leave town. Go to some distant place where Robert can never find you. You drive home quickly. But this time you play it safe. Just in case Robert wasn't captured. You park down the road. Run through the darkness toward the house. John? Who is Robert! No! Yes. Yes, but the radio is... I gave him the slip, John. I had to see you. I stumbled. I twisted my ankle. Don't kill me, Robert, while I'm helpless this way. I'm not going to kill you at all. Well, you swore you would. I know, but I've changed my mind. I've had time to think. All I want is for you to tell them the truth. That you committed the crime I've spent three years in prison for. No, 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 no. No one will ever know that I killed Jed and took the money. But you listen to me, Robert. The money's hidden under the stairs. You can have it all. Go someplace where they'll never find you. No, John. But I'll get you into the house. We'll talk a little more. Yeah, but I, I don't think I can walk. I think I can still carry you here. Come on. No, 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 Robert. No, no, no. No, not that door. Don't worry, John, don't worry. All I'm going to do is take... All right, boys, come on. Stay where you are, Robert. I'm not going anywhere, but I'm afraid my stepbrother is dead. Hold the light on him. Who fired the gun? Well, I guess I did, by accident. I opened the door, and it seems my stepbrother had the rifle set to kill me. But I was carrying him, and the shot got him instead. That's what happened, all right. You can see the string tied to the rifle. Don't touch it. We figured you'd come here, Robert. That's why we came here. Glad we did. We found out a lot. You heard what John said? Everything. His whole confession. Everybody had you wrong, Robert. I guess this time your brother's trap got the right man. whistle be your signal for the signal oil program the whistler each sunday night at the same time featured in tonight's story were bill foreman as the whistler howard mcnair truda marston bill boucher pat mcgeehan herbert Lytton, and Britt wood and there you have it, March 31st, 1952, The Whistler on Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. Want to thank uh, uh, Mark and our friends at KSEY in Seymour, Texas, and also John Hendricks at KGEZ in Kalispell, Montana, a couple of our newest radio stations. And we thank all of you for joining us here each and every day we roll around here. 
on your favorite station. Please thank this station and support their advertisers. It is their kindness and courtesy that allows us to be here each and every time we roll around. And it is, of course, you reminding the station that you're out there listening that keeps us on the air right here on your favorite radio station. And uh, may I also suggest that if per chance you get busy, you miss a day on this station, you don't have to miss a show. You can always find our shows through iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Amazon by searching for Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. That's Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. And you can also find our podcasts at uh, our ClassicRadio.stream webpage. There you can stream the shows on demand. You can learn more about Classic Radio Collecting, and you can contact me there at ClassicRadio.stream. Thanks for listening. Have a great Wednesday. Tell all your friends the great radio shows are right here at this spot on the radio dial. Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox on your favorite radio station. The greatest radio shows of all time. Suspense. The Shadow Node. Washington calling David Harding, counter-spy. Classic radio theater. The Great Gildersleeve. Fibber McGee and Molly. Dragnet. Gunsmoke. The Lone Ranger. Now step back into a time machine with your host, Wyatt Cox. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. You know, I've talked for years about how much I enjoy radio's outstanding theater of thrills, suspense, and the shows normally hit the mark. Well, here's an episode that didn't. It's an episode from March 30th, 1944. It stars star Sonny Tufts and the episode entitled Cat and Mouse Suspense on Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. Roma Wines presents Suspense. Roma Wines, made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. Salud. Your health, senor. Roma Wines toast the world. The wine for your table is Roma Wine, made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. This is the man in black, here for the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California to introduce this weekly half-hour of Suspense. Tonight from Hollywood, Roma Wines bring you Mr. Sonny Tufts in a suspense play that tells of a murder in Boston and a perilous adventure in Vermont's snow-covered hills. And so with Cat and Mouse and with the performance of Sonny Tufts as John Guthrie, an engineer, we again hope to keep you in Suspense. W1QXL, W1QXL, W1QXL. This is W1, RBX calling W1QXL, W1QXL. This is WIR, Markar, Vermont, calling and standing by. W1RBX, W1RBX, this is W1QXL in Boston returning. Hiya, Guthrie, how you been? Signal's clear, good signal. Come in. W1QXL, W1QXL, W1RBX back. Hello, Lockwood. I'm fine. 
signal's good up here. I got lots to tell you. Been trying to get in touch with you for the last couple of hours. Where you been? After dinner with Valentine? Go ahead. Sorry, Guthrie, I haven't seen Val today. She hasn't answered her phone. Guess she's awful tired of picking it up and hearing me on the other end proposing. Anyhow, I've been working hard. Oh, I had a little excitement here at the laboratory an hour or so ago. Thought we had a prowler on the grounds. But guess it was a false alarm. Nerves, I guess. What's your news, Guthrie? I've got a bit for you myself, but let's hear yours first. Go ahead. Okay. Well, as far as I'm concerned, kiddo, you can set up a date for demonstration for the Army Signal Corps and the Naval Ordnance people just as soon as you like. We're in the clear now for keeps. I got the last bug out of the screen this morning, and it ought to make the prettiest little image you ever saw. And if the brass hats put the steam on, I don't see why it shouldn't be in there fighting in a couple of months. Now, let's hear about you. Go ahead. Boy, that sounds great. Uh, hold it, Guthrie. Something going on here. Uh, keep listening. I'll be back in a second. Who is it? Who's out there? Who's there? Get up from there or I'll shoot. Come out. Stop. Stop. What is it, Lockwood? Howard, what's the shooting? Is that you coughing? Lockwood, is that you? Go ahead. Hello. Hello, Guthrie. I saw him that time. Almost got him with my rifle. wonder what that guy can want. Well, I know one thing he's got, and that's a sore throat. Boy, did you hear that call? Go ahead. I'm worried, Lockwood. Somebody must be getting wise to what we've got. We'd better arrange for more protection around the lab. Well, you've heard my say of it. How are you getting on with the blueprints? Go ahead. Did you hear me, Howard? Go ahead. W1QXL. W1QXL. What's happened? Come back in. Go ahead. Hello. This is W1QXL. I, uh... I'm going away. Uh, I'm going skiing. I'm going skiing up in Sunbury, Vermont at the Phoenix Hotel. The Phoenix. Have you got that, Frank? Frank? What's all this about you going skiing? You've never been on skis in your life. Besides, I'm coming up to see you, and it's important. We'll get together now in the blueprints, okay? At the Phoenix Hotel. Go ahead, Frank. <laughs> What's this gag calling me Frank? What's going on? I hear voices behind you. Sounds like interference. You all right? I say, are you all right? I'm leaving here for Boston in the morning. I'll bring the whole works. No, no, don't. And don't contact Val. If anything happens to me, the man with a cough. The man with a cough. The cough. The uh, oh. Lockwood, what's up? You still there? Come in. Come in, Lockwood. Lockwood, come in. Lockwood, go ahead. W1QXL. W1QXL. This is W1RBX calling. Go ahead. W1QXL, W1QXL, this is W1RBX, go ahead. March 30th, 1944, suspense on Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. Okay, I know a lot of you are going, if it's a bad episode, why did you choose this one to air? Because quite frankly, this is what live radio was. You had bad actors or you know, supposedly good actors who were not good on radio doing bad readings. You had cues missed, you had lines fluffed, and you hear all of that in this episode of Suspense. Uh, Cat and Mouse starring Sonny Tufts, 
March 30th, 1944, and we'll hear more now on Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. And now it is with pleasure that we bring back to our soundstage our star, Sonny Tufts, as engineer John Guthrie in Cat and Mouse, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. about all the facts we know, Miss Amy. Yes? The bruises on uh, Mr. Lockwood's head, well, a little hard to explain, as you pointed out. It was the explosion that killed him. Uh, that seems to be fairly... Uh... Devon, yes, the explosion may have been what actually was the final cause of his death. I take a doctor's word like you for that. But those marks and bruises, suppose he'd been beaten, hit over the head in order to make him... In order to make him what? I, I can't say any more, Dr. Vaughn. I, I don't know quite what I'm talking about anyhow, I guess. You see, Howard had been experimenting with something. He had a collaborator. Collaborator? Yes, I don't know who. Howard would never... Well, he used to talk to this other man on shortwave. They both had shortwave sets. Radio hams, you call them. Those amateur radio operators. Yes. Well, I must go. Oh, let me help you with your coat, Dr. Vaughn. Oh, thank you. I must say that after talking to you, I'm partly convinced, Miss Ames, but uh, murder is a pretty difficult thing to prove, especially in this case. And uh... Oh, Excuse me. Uh, I'll be going, then. I, uh... Hello? Yes? Who? Mr. Guthrie. Well... Oh, I see. Well, if you were his friend, I... Where? In the drugstore? Yes, I'll wait. Just come right up to apartment 15E. Yes. Goodbye. Thank you again for your trouble, Dr. Vaughn. Well, please feel that you can call... <coughs> I'll get you some water. No, 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 don't bother. <coughs> Too many cigars. Bad larynx. I'm awfully sorry. <coughs> I'll say goodbye. Sure you're all right? No, it's perfect. Don't worry. I'll keep in touch with you, Miss Ames. Yes. Well, goodbye now. Oh, just a minute. Hello. You must be Valentine Ames. Yes, I am. I'd recognize you anywhere. Well, just, uh, are you Mr. Guthrie? Just throw your things in that chair there. You're just as I pictured you. Lockwood spoke of you so often. Howard spoke of me? Do you? Well, you were engaged to be married, weren't you? No, I was fond of him, but But (laughs) never that way. He told me, that is, he said... Then you were his collaborator. Oh, please, Mr. Guthrie, you can trust me. I need help. They all say his death was an accident coroner, the newspapers, the police. But I know it wasn't. How do they say it happened? Oh, an explosion in his laboratory. Chemicals he was using in his experiments. Nonsense. Explosion. There wasn't anything more explosive in Lockwood's lab than a package of matches. Then you were his collaborator. Oh, please trust me. Lockwood was murdered. I know it. You think so too, then? Yes. Well, then our job is to prove he was murdered. No, I'm sorry, Val. There's something more important that comes first. When they kill Lockwood, they stole half of our... Well... Your invention? But half an invention is worthless. But I have the other half. In other words... Yeah. I'm next. We can count on that. But they, they don't know who you are. Maybe not yet. Hmm. That was why Lockwood kept calling me Frank when he was talking to me near the end. He didn't want to give my name away to them. And you've no idea who they are? Just something we could start on? Well, just one thing. That night, the night he was killed, we were talking a short wave, and he'd been bothered by a prowler. He spoke of it. I even heard the fellow in the air. He was... Oh, Excuse me a second. Hello? 
Yes. Oh, Dr. Borberg. Yes, it's nice of you to call me back. And thank you so much for sending Dr. Vaughn to see me. He certainly is... Dr. Vaughn. But you sent him to see me about Dr. Lockwood. About... Dr. Edmund Vaughn? You're positive? I see. Well, thank you anyway. Bye. What's up? Someone just before you came, and Dr. Edwin Vaughn said he was with the coroner's office. Called on me. And the coroner's office never heard of him. Is that it? Never. Uh-huh. Well, who was he? I mean, what did he look like? Would you recognize him if you saw him again? Well, he was just a middle-aged fellow. Poor man had a terribly bad cough. One of the really hacking coughs. A cough? Yes. It's the same one. He came to Howell's lab the night of the killing. I heard him. You sure? Positive. You see, it fits. He was looking for me. Figured I'd come here to see you. He wants my half an invention. Well, Val... They need what I've got, and I've got to get back what they've stolen, so... Where are you going? Skiing. What? I'm going back to Vermont to go skiing. <laughs> I'll send you a card from the Phoenix Hotel. Next up is Sunbury, Vermont. Sunbury! Bring me an orange aid, Porter. Ah. Well, hello. You're new up here. I uh, beg your pardon? You're going to the Phoenix Hotel, of course. It gets so you know a skiing fan when you see one. I know most all the Phoenix crowd. This must be your first trip to the Phoenix, huh? Yeah, it is. Hmm. Name's O'Brien. John Guthrie. Hmm. Excuse me. Do they serve drinks in this lounge car? Yes, they do. Yeah, you're new, too. Well, yes, I've only been in the States a few weeks. Oh, no. I mean new to our weekend skiing contingent. Skiing contingent? Yeah. Oh, oh, yes. I'm O'Brien. That's Mr. Guthrie. What did you say your name was? Well, I... Uh, uh... Thanks, Porter, thanks. And uh, bring me a couple more cigars, will you? Here, uh, take one of mine while you're waiting, Mr. O'Brien. Oh, thank you. Now, that's what I like about the Phoenix crowd. They're sociable. Everybody pals with everybody else. <laughs> Sounds very pleasant. Yes, I suppose so. Well, Mr., uh, uh, well, anyway, you wait. By Monday, everyone in the place will be calling you by your first name. Oh, really? Well, I guess I'd better be getting back to my compartment. Very happy to have met you, gentlemen. See you later. <coughs> Weird duck. Unsociable life. Now I always say, you take a fellow that won't mix. Be quiet a minute. What's the matter with you, Mr. Guthrie? You look like you'd seen a ghost. Good evening, Mr. Guthrie. I trust you're feeling refreshed now, sir. Yeah, three hours sleep and a long walk was just what I needed. Any messages for me? No, sir. Good evening, Mr. O'Brien. Hello there, hello. Ah, there you are. I've been looking for you everywhere. Want to introduce you around to some of the folks here. Well, uh, thanks, Mr. O'Brien. I would kind of like to get acquainted. Why, sure. Be sociable. You see the old lady in the wheelchair? That's Mrs. Garvey. Mrs. Garvey, eh? Yeah. They're new here, too. Legs paralyzed, poor soul. Always sits and knits. Husky man's her husband. Uh, well, hello there, folks. Uh, hello, Irishman. Well. Ah, feels good here. So you're a newcomer? Uh, only one of them, yeah. And uh, this sweet soul, Mr. Guthrie, is Mrs. Garvey. <laughs> Excuse my not shaking hands. I'm all tied up in this ball of wool. When you can't walk, you compensate by keeping the hands over busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very considerate of you to make me feel at home here, Mrs. Garvey and Mr. Garvey. Mm, surprised a strong young man like you isn't in the army. Really, Daddy. You have to excuse him, Mr. Guthrie. Nosy and fresh. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there's no harm done. Uh, see, I'm an engineer and they've deferred me. 
There he is. I'm doing my share as is, I suppose. Yeah. I'm a promoter myself. Here, Daddy. Hold out your hands. That's it. Now, don't wiggle or my wool will slip. And I'm not in the army because I'm too old. Took advantage of the over-38 law. I'm 59. He's <laughs> <laughs> a card, isn't he? <laughs> sure is. Uh, just what is a promoter, Mr. Garvey? Careful, Daddy. Those knitting needles almost stuck you then. They're special needles, Mr. Guthrie. Sharp. Why, they could cut ice or pierce wood. Or kill a man. Yes. Yes, I'll be careful, Mother. So you're an engineer, Mr. Guthrie. I knew an engineer. Fine boy. Oh, I remember him. He was a dear boy. Anybody I know? No. I thought I'd try to get him to come up here. He was working on an experiment I was very much interested in. He wouldn't do business with me, though. Yeah? Now, bring your hands together, Daddy. That's a good boy. Fine. Daddy has such big, strong hands, yet they're so gentle. Well, the boy's dead now. Met with an accident, I think. Really? Uh, what did you say his name was? Howard Lockwood. Yes, Lockwood. He uh, had a collaborator I've been trying to locate. He and I could really have a long talk. Say, by the way, Guthrie, have you seen that bird, uh, the unsociable one we came up in the train with? No, uh, I haven't. He's probably a big businessman. He seems so nervous. I tell you, it doesn't pay. Yeah, be sociable. Business can always wait. Definitely. <laughs> when I see how little you fellas get out of life, I thank heavens I have the sense to retire. Uh, how long have you been retired, Mr. O'Brien? Mm, be four years in June. Mm, you in business for yourself? No, no, I was a professional man. Oh, I see. Uh, medicine? No, detective. I was with the FBI. FBI. <laughs> Guthrie, come in, come in. Feel just like a nice sociable talk. Sit down, sit down. Mr. O'Brien, I'm in trouble and I need expert help. And you are an FBI man. You can help me. Uh-oh. I was afraid of that. I'm sorry, Guthrie. I'm retired. Too old for the game. You get a hold of the Boston office. They'll get someone up to help you in a jiffy. Call Jack Porter. He's in charge now. They'll mention my name. But there's no time now. You see, Boston is six hours from here. I need help right now. Oh, take it easy, boy. Relax. I suppose you're another engineer with some gadget that's going to win the war. That's a familiar one. Mr. O'Brien, this is serious. There's a murder in this hotel, and if I don't get him, he'll get me. Now, now, take it easy. If you'll just give me a hand. You know, I felt there was something going on here this weekend. Things, were, things weren't sociable like they usually are. Mm-hmm. What have you noticed? Mm, nothing in particular. Just people seem to act funny. You take that Garvey and his old wife, and that bird with a cough that came up on the train with us. What's he up to, eating his meals in his room? Look, will you help me, Mr. O'Brien? I do have an invention, as it happens, and... Oh, excuse me a minute. Hello? Mr. Guthrie? Yes, he's here. Hmm. The gentleman in 421. Right now. Very well. Goodbye. It's for you. Party in 421 wants you to step in and see him. That's him. That fake Dr. Vaughn. Well, this is it. And you refuse to help. Oh, now, look. Uh, I'd like to, I guess, but after all... The... All right, O'Brien, but look, just this. 421 is right down the hall. And if I'm not back in ten minutes, will you knock on the door? Oh, that much, uh, I'll do for you. John. Well, Valentine, what are you doing here? We agreed that you... Oh, John, open your door quickly before we're seen together. Look, Val, I've got something important to do. Wait in my room for me. If I can only find a key. The door's open. That's funny, I locked it. Look! The room's been searched. My papers, the pillows, my trunk. Oh, John, they know you. Where is it? You didn't bring the blueprints with you here. I'm not that dumb. Well, it's gone. What? My gun. 
Oh, John, I'm afraid. I feel as if I'd known you for a long time. My dear. Well, you know I love you, don't you? John, we, we shouldn't talk about that now. But, you see, I've been in love with what I think you are. I've only known you for two days, and... What are you trying to ask me, John? Why you came when we agreed that you shouldn't. Because I was afraid that you... And why I find you hiding near my door and find the door unlocked. And I had locked it only ten minutes ago, and then I come into my room and I find oh, this. Oh, John, don't. Please don't. I came because I wanted to help you. I felt that if you were in danger, it wasn't right for me to stay home safe, not knowing. Yeah. I'm sorry, Val. I trust you. Look, stay here. I'm going down the hall. Somebody's waiting. Oh, don't go, me. John. Don't, please. I'm afraid for you. You got a gun, Val? Yes, I thought I might need it. Well, give it to me. Now, kiss me. Oh, John, I... Wait here. If I'm not back in ten minutes, get the police. Where are you going? Room 421 to talk to a man about his cough. I'm going with you. This is his room. I'm going in with you. You're staying outside. Step back. Don't let him see you. Open up. His door's open, too. <gasps> They're on the rug. The body. Dr. Vaughn, he's dead. Look. Look at the gun. He's holding it. He, he killed himself. You mean he's supposed to look as if he killed himself? He was shot in the back of the head. A bit too neat. What do you mean? That gun in his hand. It's mine. Then if he wasn't the murderer, who was he? Oh, John, the gun. They'll think that you... Shh, take it easy. That gun may come in handy. Come in. Line flubs, technical cues, what a mess. But we'll hear the end of Suspense, March 30th, 1944, starring Sonny Tufts, uh, following these important words from your favorite station, when Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox continues. Now mercifully on Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox, the conclusion of Suspense, March 30th, 1944, Cat and Mouse, starring Sonny Tufts. Well. O'Brien, look here. What? This gun's mine. It's a plot to frame me. What? That's not your killer, Guthrie. That's Hillary Lawrence of Scotland Yard, assigned to this case because his government, like ours, is keenly interested in your invention. I should have listened to you before, Guthrie. You know about it, then? I checked. Called FBI office in Boston. Talked to Porter. Yes, your Dr. Vaughn was Hillary Lawrence of Scotland Yard. He was the one you heard in Lockwood's lab the night he was killed. He must have got a little too close in the tail of the real killers. Mr. Garvey was... Well, I really don't know enough to talk. I better shut my big mouth. But I think I know. You know the killer? No, but I have no proof. Without proof, Guthrie, you'll be held for the murder of Lawrence. Mm, That's obvious. We've got to get our other evidence before someone finds the body. Yeah. You know, there must be a hideout around here they operate from. There's a cabin about a mile to the left from the top of the ski jump. I saw it one day when I got lost. I've got a funny hunch it might be the place. If we can get there and find something involving them before the hotel people find this body and arrest you, we'll be... Well, what are we waiting for? Come on, let's go. Come on back to my room, Val. See you downstairs in five minutes, O'Brien. If we don't find proof, John, what then? Then we get murdered or get held for murder. Cabin's dark. Yeah, one of these keys must fit. Ah, that one does it. Softly now. Mr. Guthrie, I'll take Miss Ames's gun. You're too impulsive. Thanks. Well, there's no one here. 
Draw the shade, please. I'd better keep a lookout on the road. Someone may come. That's a good idea. Now, this is what I call a real sociable evening. Look, a note, and it's addressed to me. Well, we're in the right place, then. Read it. Guthrie, 200000 in cash for your blueprints, and you can get the cash first, wherever you designate, with no questions asked as to what government gets them. Why Sir, those... Sir, calmly, my boy. You don't have the prints here, do you? Uh, no, uh, they're, uh, they're uh, in a safety vault, and my name is San Francisco. What's, what's that there, that panel? It's a radio rig, sending and receiving. Someone's coming. Who? Quick, turn off that light. Sneak a look, John, here, through the window. It's Garvey, and he's alone. Alone? Are you sure? Where'd he put that wife of his? Take another look. Uh, he's alone, all right. I knew she was a phony. She does too much knitting. I wonder where she is. All right, Miss Ames, out you go, quickly. Get to the foot of the road before he does. Uh-huh. It's, uh, it's your car, understand? Yes. You're lost, looking for a way back to the Phoenix. Delay him from coming in here. Right. I'll go outside. You search the place, O'Brien, with Val. No, let the girl go. Her best weapons are charm. Hurry now. Stall him as long as you can. Good luck. Don't worry. I can see them from here. Look at it. Short wave. Yeah. With this outfit, Garvey could hear Lockwood and me talking over our work. Yeah. Pretty clever operator, I'd say. Can you see Val? Yeah. She's getting near him now. Brave girl, that one. The best. There she is. He's seen her. Let me have a look. See them? Over my finger, between that row of trees. Yeah, she's talking to Garvey now. She'll stall him. Yeah. Hey, come on, O'Brien. Let's start searching his place. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Look, they're coming this way. The two of them. Well, I should have known. Val? Oh, no, it can't be. Sorry, Guthrie, but you're seeing right. The girl's with Garvey. But she loves me. I know it. She's honest. I swear it. They're coming up the path. You stand behind the door. I'll stand up on the balcony and cover them from behind with a gun. You all set, Guthrie? All set. You spring out on them as they close the door, and I'll cover you from here. Val, Garvey, duck! He's got the gun, above. Oh, my arm! O'Brien! All of you reach. Don't stoop for that gun, Guthrie. Up with your arms. Three of you are going to join the late Mr. Lockwood. The girl and Mr. Garvey of the FBI who poked his nose in a foot too far. You're out of your mind, O'Brien. What will you get by killing us? I've got the information you want, and if I'm dead, you'll never get it. I'm fighting for my life now, not your invention. With you three out of the way, I've got a chance. A fire in this lovely cabin will do the job nicely. Now get into that closet, all of you. Get started. You're missing one, O'Brien, my wife. I'm not worrying about that, O'Brien. Drop your gun, Mr. O'Brien. That point you feel in your back is my knitting needle. Drop it. Remember, it can crack ice, pierce wood, or kill a man. Okay, Mrs. Garvey. Certainly nice to see you again. Uh, Nice job, Guthrie. You tipped us off just in time. Sit down, Mother. You look tired. You must be standing behind the kitchen door for an hour. Look here. Just be quiet, Mr. O'Brien. Formerly of the FBI. Kicked out for improper conduct, he was. The service has had its eye on you ever since, my friend. Yeah, you see, you made a slight error, O'Brien, when you said you'd call the porter of uh, the Boston FBI office. The outgoing lines from the hotel have been out of order since 5 o'clock. Oh, your arm, Daddy, here. Let me bandage it. You better get going and have it looked after. Oh, it's bleeding. I, I think I'm going to faint. Faint ahead, Val. I got a pair of arms that aren't doing a thing. And so closes Cat and Mouse, starring Sonny Tufts, tonight's tale of Suspense. 
Mr. Tufts appeared through the courtesy of Paramount Pictures and will soon be seen in the Paramount picture, I Love a Soldier. This is Sonny Tufts, and I hope you enjoyed our suspense play this evening. I know I had a good time. I'm looking forward to next week's show, and I know you must be when that remarkable actress, the Academy Award winner, Madame Katina Paxino, will be the star of Suspense. Suspense is produced and directed by William Spear. Next Thursday, same time, you will hear Katina Paxinu in Suspense. Presented by Roma Wines. Made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. Sonny Tufts best known for his time as a contract player at Paramount. Uh, he had roles in the movie So Proudly We Hailed and starring in the cult classic Cat Women of the Moon. Sonny Tufts in an episode of Suspense, March 30th, 1944, on Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. Now, a much better executed program, an episode of the soap opera Claudia. This originally broadcast March 30th, 1948. And now, Claudia. Well, David, I'm glad there's one cheerful man in this office at any rate. What's wrong, Roger? I thought you liked the idea of going to Chicago. I like the idea of going to Chicago and meeting Carrington and of getting our freight terminal underway, but I do not like the idea of leaving New York. Well, I guess we can't have everything. I know. One of the most dismal facts of human existence is the difficulty of being in two places at the same time. <laughs> well, you won't have to be in Chicago very long, I hope. <laughs> Makes no difference. The trouble is that I must be there at all. David, I'm going to ask you and Claudia to do me a favor. Oh, we'd feel honored, Roger. Do you want us to entertain a maiden aunt or get your laundry back? <laughs> Perhaps it's a combination of both. I'd like you to keep an eye on my son, Jeffrey, while I'm away. I'm glad to. Oh, don't be hasty, David. He may be more of a handful than you imagine. Oh, I doubt it. I really don't know. He's away at boarding school, you know, and he's at that age of rapid changes. I see him perhaps once in three months, and his behavior on one occasion is no clue to what he'll be like three months later. Seems to me I remember what that's like. A year ago, he seemed to be planning a career in professional football. He was 15 then. Last fall, he was determined to become an art critic. Around Christmas, I had an actor for a son. <laughs> and now, David, well, in a few hours, you will know more about Jeffrey than I do. When's he coming to New York? Will he be leaving Boston around noon? He spent most of his vacation up there with his grandmother. And he should be here about uh, five, huh? Exactly. Can't stay at a hotel. His mother, of course, is away campaigning for something or other very worthy. And now that I have to go to Chicago, you are really the only people I can turn to. Oh, we'd be delighted, Roger. We have an extra room, and we'd love to have him stay. It's very good of you, David. Jeffrey's 16 now, isn't he? He was 16 about two months ago. That's wonderful. Claudia's only 19, so they'll get along famously. Well, after all, he's only three years younger than she is. Mm, you'd be surprised how long three years can be. I'm looking forward to learning. We'll expect Je Jeffrey for dinner tonight, then, Roger. That's very good of you. Let me see now. It's a uh, quarter of ten. I have half an hour to get to the station for my train. I'll send Jeffrey a telegram. He'll get it before he leaves for his station. And he should be at your apartment at 6 o'clock. David, it's 6 o'clock. Jeffrey should be here any minute. He should be if he can find the place. Why shouldn't he find it? Well, maybe he doesn't want to spend the night with a couple of old fogies. David, you are not an old fogey. In fact, you're not even a young fogey. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You overwhelm me with your flattery. I've never heard of a young fogey. Have you? How could there be young fogies? There wouldn't be anything left for them to become when they get old. Do you think we're ever going to become old? I can't imagine. I'm old already. Old and foolish. 
I can't even learn any new tricks. I mean really old with gray hair and rheumatism. Mm, got rheumatism already. And remember my pipe, old lady. Just a minute. I'd steer in my rocking chair, puffing away and watching the world go by and thinking to myself <laughs> about the days when I was young. Hmm? Here's your pipe, Granddad. Do you think you can manage to light the match yourself? Well, better. I could have one last wild fling and try to light my own pipe myself. Huh? <laughs> David, listen, what do you think Jeffrey's going to want to do for entertainment? Maybe play with the dog. He's 16, you said, not six. Now, what can you do to entertain a boy 16? Roger didn't seem to know. Well, the first thing you've got to do is to stop thinking of him as a boy. You aren't much more than 16 yourself. Madam, I'll never see 25 again. And, and I was 16 only three years ago. That's what I said to Roger. But he said those were a very big three years. Oh, men, really. No wonder there's so much juvenile delinquency. And now, listen, David, we've got to think of what Jeffrey would do if he were trying to do what he wanted to do. See? Sure, I see. I see you don't know any more about 16-year-old boys than I do. David, I was just 16 a little while ago. Wouldn't you have married me if I was still 16? Stop this right now. You're only going to make me regret the years I wasted. I'm sorry I didn't marry you when you were two. You haven't really changed much since then. Darling, we haven't got time for this. I'm sure we've just got to treat him like everybody else. Maybe you're right. We'll just take him to dinner, and then we'll go to that movie around the corner that we've been waiting for for weeks, and, and we'll have a nice long talk about world affairs. Fine. Huh? You better make up your mind what you think about world affairs, because there is Jeffrey. I'll go. Remember, we're going to treat him like an equal. I just hope he treats us like one. Hello. You must be Jeffrey Killian. I'm Claudia Norton, David's wife. Uh, how do you do? Please come in. Did you have a... Nice trip down from Boston. It was very pleasant, thank you. David, I'd like you to meet Jeffrey Killian. Hello, Jeffrey. Welcome to New York. Glad you got here. How do you do, Mr. Norton? Let's have your bag. I'll show you to your room. Oh, no, sir. Please let me carry it. it it's rather heavy. Heavy? Well, I think I can manage. Don't uh, you think so, Claudia? Of course. Excuse me, sir, but I think I'd better. Well, if you insist, Jeffrey. Yes, sir. You see, it's, it's rather heavy, sir. I see by now. Well, you don't want to go to your room right away, do you, Jeffrey? Let's sit around and talk a while. You look very much like your father, and he's one of the nicest people in the world. Yes, Mrs. Norton. Thank you. Wouldn't you like to sit down, Jeffrey? I don't suppose you smoke yet. Oh, no, sir. We're not allowed to smoke until we're 18, sir. I see. Look, Jeffrey, I don't see why we can't all call each other by our first names. Uh, mine's David. Yes, sir. You must go to a very good school. Don't you? Yes, Mrs. Norton. It's the best school in the country. That's fine. But it must be nice to get away on a vacation now and then. I know Roger... I mean, your father was very sorry he had to go to Chicago today and couldn't be here. But we were very glad for the chance to meet you. I'm very glad to meet you, too, Mrs. Norton. I like to be with older people once in a while. Older people? You mustn't think of us as older people, Jeffrey. You must just think of us as friends of yours. Oh, I, I see, Mrs. Norton. Don't you uh, think you could manage to call us... Uh... <laughs> oh, well, never mind. Uh, yes, sir. What do you usually do when you're on a vacation, Jeffrey? The usual thing, Mrs. Norton. Hmm? What's the usual thing? Dances, sir. Parties, a theater or two. Oh, that must be lots of fun. I'm afraid you'd find it a bit juvenile, Mrs. Norton. I do myself. Then you mean you don't go? Oh, yes, sir, I go. It Well, I just mean sometimes it's a waste of time. I like to explain that when I talk to older people. 
Sometimes they seem to get the wrong impression of us, sir. Jeffrey, you must really go to a very good school. Oh, yes. It's only during vacations that we have all these parties, Mrs. Norton. <clears throat> I'm uh, glad you reminded me of that, Jeffrey. <laughs> it's so long ago for me that I'd forgotten what it's like. I think maybe Claudia, I mean Mrs. Norton, remembers. Do you, darling? I do remember going to dances. Sort of. One of the things you'll learn, Jeffrey, as you grow older is that ladies have the longest memories. I've noticed that already, sir. Why, of all uh, the... Claudia, do you remember vacations from school? Do you remember your 40th birthday? You wouldn't uh, think to look at me that I was over 40, would you, Jeffrey? Oh, no, sir. You look very young for 40. Well, uh, thank you, Jeffrey. Now, um, what would you like to do this evening? We were thinking of going to a movie. Thought you might like to come along. Oh, I, I'm afraid I can't, Mr. Norton. Didn't Dad tell you, sir? Well, your father didn't tell me anything. I mean, anything that was much help. Oh, I, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm going to a party tonight. A party? How exciting. It isn't really, Mrs. Norton. Perhaps you remember what they're like. Always the same people. Uh, very young. Usually jitterbugging. Although I'm happy to say that's on the way out. It is? Oh, yes. Uh, during the war, that was very popular, Mrs. Norton. But since then... Things have changed a great deal. We've all grown a lot older. We've all grown a lot older since this morning, Jeffrey. A great deal older. Don't you think so, Mrs. Norton? Much older. David, I think I'm going to need help getting out of this chair. Oh, I'm so sorry. Something the matter? My wife, Jeffrey, suffers from rheumatism. I'm indeed upset to hear that, sir. Uh, my father has stomach trouble. I guess when people get uh, to You be... don't need to finish that sentence, Jeffrey. You're perfectly right. Terrible things happen to people when they grow older. The worst part of it is that they happen when you least expect it. Did you expect all this to happen to you today, Claudia? I know just how it is, Mr. Norton. When I was younger, I used to be able to do all sorts of things I can't do anymore. What sort of things, Jeffrey? Well, up at school, there's a very famous little store called the Jigger Shop. What's a jigger? Well, nobody really knows. The shop is so old, they've forgotten but the younger boys like to go in and eat the fanciest things you ever saw, Mrs. Norton. You mean banana splits and things like that? Oh, yes. I myself used to be able to eat two at a time. Sometimes even three. Now I suppose you can't even force more than one. Well, Jeffrey, that's the way life is. You might as well view it philosophically. That's true. I can't eat more than one now. And as a matter of fact, sir, I've... I've really lost my taste for you them. You don't say. Except on special occasions like when we beat St. Mark's at football. It's funny, I love banana splits. You are an anachronism, darling. I am? Mm -hmm. I've heard that when people get much older, they begin to like the things they liked in the first place all over again. Jeffrey, I think you have put your finger on a very important consideration. Uh, thank you, Mr. Norton. Uh, I, I really enjoy this conversation very much, but I'm afraid I have to start getting dressed for the party. Oh, it's for dinner, Jeffrey. Yes, and please don't wait up for me. I'll be very, very late. Perfectly all right. We'll leave the door on the latch. It's certainly been nice talking to you like this. It's it's uh, really a relief from talking to people of one's own age all the time. Uh, Jeffrey, before you go, maybe you'd like to guess just how old Mrs. Norton is. Well, sir, she looks very much like my uncle's wife. Uh, and how old is she? Well, she's quite old, sir. She's at least... Twenty. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. You've relieved me considerably. Well, thank you, sir, but I've got to get dressed, sir. It's the door down the hall to the right. Uh, thank you. Well, well, I did my best to treat him as an equal, but I, I really think he's too old and wise for me. How do you feel? <laughs> 
David, I feel just like an old fogey. Well, don't worry, darling. I think it'll turn out just as Jeffrey predicts, and your second childhood will set in again as soon as the young man goes back to Boston. If the lady of the house sometimes shows less enthusiasm for unexpected guests than her husband does... Excuse me, Mr. King, sir. Oh, yes. Yes, certainly, Jeffrey. Glad to see you. You enjoying your vacation? I certainly am, sir. And I hope I won't awaken Mr. and Mrs. Norton when I get home from the party this evening. Do they retire very early, sir? Not always, Jeffrey. In fact, I hear tomorrow night after you've gone, Claudia and David are going out to paint the town red. Maybe you've given them an idea or two. Uh, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Norton are going to a nightclub, did you say, sir? That's what I understand, Jeffrey. I hope you won't disapprove of what happens. I'll try not, Mr. King, but I think, sir, I'd better hear what happens. I should hate to have been a bad influence. Well, Jeffrey, I don't think you have, but we'll see. And as I was about to say, every day, Monday through Friday, Claudia comes to you transcribed with the best wishes of your friendly neighbor who bottles Coca-Cola. So listen again tomorrow at the same time. And now this is Joe King saying au revoir. And remember, whoever you are, whatever you do, wherever you may be, when you think of refreshment, think of Coca-Cola. For ice-cold Coca-Cola makes any pause. The pause that refreshes... And for March 30th, 1948, Claudia on Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. It's very important that you support the advertisers of this radio station. They pay the bills to keep this program and this radio station on the air. So do business with you can, won't you please? And uh, by the way, would you drop this station a card or a letter? Let them know that you're listening. Give them your support. They deserve it because they keep us on the air here. Alrighty, and also, uh, if you would do me another favor, if you miss a day on this station, you do not have to miss a single show, because all of our shows are available through iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or through Amazon. All you have to do is search for Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. That's Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. Our shows are also available on demand through my webpage, which is Classic Radio dot stream there not only can you stream our shows on demand you can learn more about building a classic radio collection of your own you can find all of our social media links and you can contact me there classic radio dot stream thanks for tuning in i'm wyatt cox and tell all your friends the great radio shows are right here at this spot on the dial classic radio theater with wyatt cox on your favorite radio station The greatest radio shows of all time. Suspense. The Shadow Node. Washington calling David Harding, counter-spy. Classic radio theater. The Great Gildersleeve. Fibber McGee and Molly. Dragnet. Gunsmoke. The Lone Ranger. Now step back into a time machine with your host, Wyatt Cox. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. Just the facts, ma'am. Jack Webb, starring in Dragnet, an episode from March 30th, 1954, and it seems there's something interesting, because you have the big confession. 
Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to homicide detail. A young man walks into your office and tells you he has a problem. From the way he talks, you know it's serious. Your job, listen. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Wednesday, September 8th. It was cold in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Warman. My name's Friday. I was on my way back to the office from R&I, and it was 10.14 a.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. Pardon me, sir. Yes, sir. Are you a policeman? Yes, sir. That's right. What can I do for you? I want to talk to somebody. I'm not sure who, though. Well, if you tell me what it's all about, I might be able to help you. Well, I've got to be sure it's the right person. You can understand that, can't you? Yes, sir. My name's Paul Marcus. All right, Mr. Marcus. What is it you want to talk about? Do you work in there in the homicide department? That's right. You know all about murders, then, huh? You want to come into the office and talk? No, no, I don't want to go in there. Is there someplace else we can go? I'd like to talk to you alone. This is kind of a personal thing. All right, sir. Come on down the hall. Interrogation room. Nobody else there? No. Well, that's good, because like I told you, this is a personal matter. I need your advice. All right, sir. This way. This is the first time I've ever been in a police department. I feel kind of funny just walking in and talking personal things to a stranger. Yes, sir. I can understand. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Want to sit down right there? Thank you. All right, you want to tell me about it? Do you mind closing the door? All right. All right, now what's your problem, Mr. Marcus? I, I told you it was personal. Yes, I know. I want to be sure I handled it right. I could get in a lot of trouble if I didn't. Mm-hmm. Been trying to figure out what to do about it for a week now and couldn't find the right answer. That's why I came here. You guys should know. All right, now if you'll just tell me what's bothering you, we might be able to do something for you. Uh-huh. A whole week and no answer. I sure hope you've got it for me. I'm sorry, Mr. Marcus, but if you don't tell me what this is all about, there's nothing we can do. Well, it's nothing big, just a personal problem. I just want to know how to handle it. All right, go ahead. I killed a woman. 10.18 a.m. We got the name of the woman Paul Marcus said that he'd murdered. We also obtained a description of the victim, and Frank went down the hall to missing persons to see if a report had been filed on her. I waited with the suspect. It's a personal problem. You know how to handle it. I wasn't sure. That's why I came to you. All right, where did you meet this Lorraine Farrell? San Francisco. How long ago? A couple of weeks. I just knew her a little while before it happened, just a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Fisherman's Wharf. What's that? Fisherman's Wharf. That's where I met her in San Francisco. I was on a vacation. Two weeks with pay, and I went to San Francisco. Fisherman's Wharf. That's where I met Lorraine. All right, go ahead. Well, I was down there sitting on the dock looking at the boats, just sitting there eating prawns. You know how they cook them in those great big pots? Yeah. Well, I was just sitting there eating prawns, and I met her. Well, where'd you kill her? Look, you've got to let me tell this in my own way or I'm not going to tell you at all. It's got to be right so you'll understand. Now, if you don't get it right, the whole thing's gone wrong. You see, it's a real personal thing. All right, sir, go ahead. Well, I was just sitting there eating prawns, eating them and throwing the little tail pieces down in the water. You know how you do. Mm-hmm. Watching them kind of float around. Kind of all of a sudden, she was right there sitting just alongside of me. You ever see her before? I never laid eyes on her till then. All right, go ahead. We both sat there for a minute and then we started to talk. Just little things like nice weather and... How long you've been in San Francisco, things like that. You know how you do. How old did you say the feral woman was? 19. Turned 19 the 5th of August. 
She was born there, you know, in San Francisco. She told me about it when we were talking, how she was born there and grew up there. Yeah. Told me all about the school she went to, how she used to play on Strawberry Island and Stow Lake. You ever been there? Yes, sir. It's kind of a beautiful place, you know. They got those rowboats and you paddle around the lake and right in the middle is this island, Strawberry Island. There's all those swans that swim around. You can feed them. Real beautiful Strawberry Island. Tell me something, Marcus. You ever been in the hospital? Huh? You ever had any mental care? Been under the supervision of a psychiatrist, maybe? You think I'm crazy, don't you? I want to just ask you a question. Oh, I'm not. I've never been to a doctor. I'm telling you the truth. You'll see. All right. You want to go ahead? I guess you get a lot of crackpots in here telling you all kinds of phony stories, huh? The doors are wide open all night. I guess you get a lot of them. But I'm not a crackpot. I'm telling you the truth. I did kill her. But it's important you know why I did it. I got to tell you the right way. If I don't, none of it's going to be any good. When'd you kill her? September 1st. That's the day we left. September 1st. That'd be a week ago today, huh? Yeah, September 1st. Joe? Yeah. See you a minute. All right. Just a minute, Marcus. Mm Mm-hmm. What do you got? Well, I checked missing persons. Yeah. I got a report on the girl, same name, description matches. When'd she disappear? September 1st. Well, that fits in with what he told us. Yeah, but there's something that doesn't. What's that? She's 16 years old. Each year, there are hundreds of citizens who walk into the nearest police station and confess to some sort of crime. Some have actually happened. Others have occurred only in the mind of the person confessing. No matter how wild the confession, how implausible the details of the crime, each report has to be checked out. To doctors, such cases are clinical, but to the working detective, they're the cause of a lot of legwork and a great deal of checking. They cost the taxpayer untold man hours in investigating time and many times result in nothing. Because of his attitude and his reluctance to give us the complete story all at once, it appeared that Paul Marcus might be one of these people. The fact that he named a girl who was missing meant little since it was possible for him to have read the story in a newspaper. The only way we had of being sure was to continue the interrogation. 10.34 a.m. She told me she wanted to get away from home. That's what she told me, how it was rough for her there, and she wanted to get away. Mm-hmm. That's when you said you'd bring her down here, is that right? Oh, no, I didn't even suggest it. The whole thing was her idea. She brought it up? Yes. You see, after that first day on Fisherman's Wharf, I saw her several times, almost every day. We'd meet someplace and talk. Where would you meet her? Well, sometimes in one of the hotel bars, once we met out at the Steinhardt Aquarium. We met on the rotunda there. You know where they have the big pool and all the alligators swimming around? You know where? Mm-hmm. Well, we met there once. And we walked over to the place where they have the band concerts, right across the way where the band plays, only they weren't there that day. Wasn't anybody there, just Lorraine and me. We sat on the benches and talked. That's when she said she wanted to go with me. To Los Angeles, huh? Yeah. That's where I was going. She wanted me to take her. She came right out and asked you, huh? Sure. Told me how it was hard for her at home and she wanted to get away. She told me she had friends here. Said she could stay with them until she got things straightened out. You know, get a job and a place of her own. Mm-hmm. Well, she was going to do that, get a place of her own and a job, and then she'd be all right. You ever meet her parents? No, I never went to the house. She told me where it was, though, someplace out by the Twin Peaks Tunnel. I didn't know where exactly. She didn't want me to go out there. Said it would only cause her more trouble. That's why I'd meet her in town. You ever meet any of her friends up in San Francisco? Yeah, just once. We were in a drugstore on Market Street having a sandwich. We were just sitting there, and she was telling me how it was bad for her at home, and a girl came in. Looked like she was a schoolgirl. You know what I mean, young? Mm-hmm. Well, she came in and talked to Lorraine, then they went over to the phone booths and talked. You didn't actually meet the girl? No. No, Lorraine said if I did, the girl might say something to Lorraine's parents, and that would cause trouble. You know this girl's name? I think it was Grace. I'm not sure, but I think it was Grace. When did you leave San Francisco? Wednesday morning, September 1st. I wanted to get back in time to get some rest before I had to go to work. You know, my vacation was up, and I had to go back to work. Where'd you pick up the girl? Wasn't a pickup. I was sitting on Fisherman's Wharf, eating prawns and looking at the boats, and we started to talk. Wasn't a pickup. We just got friendly. No, Marcus, he means it. Where'd you pick up the girl when you left for Los Angeles? Oh, I thought you meant when I met her the first time. That's what I thought. Uh-huh. I met her out at the tunnel. Where's that? Well, you know where Castro Street runs into market, where the L car comes in from the beach? That's where I met her. She came from home, had her suitcase and all, and she came out on the L car. 
All right, go ahead. Well, she got off the streetcar, got into my car, and we left for Los Angeles. Where'd you kill her? I told you before, if I don't tell it my way, it isn't going to work. You're not going to understand. It's got to be my way. All right, go ahead, Marcus. Well, it was a beautiful day, just the kind of a day you want when you're going on a drive. You know how I mean, clear and the sun shining? Yeah. Well, that's what kind of a day it was. Uh-huh. You could see all across the bay over to Berkeley and way up north. It was real clear. You want to go ahead with your story? Mr. Friday? Mm-hmm. My way? Yes, all right, go ahead. All right. We drove all day, stopped for lunch at a place near San Luis Obispo, a little lunch down there. Had a French dip sandwich. It was one of the best I ever had. The meat was real lean, and they didn't sop up the bun with the gravy. Just the right amount. One of the best I ever ate. Mm-hmm. Lorraine liked them, too. She didn't like the bread all sopped up with gravy. Well, go ahead. What happened after you had lunch? Well, we left there and drove on. We got down to around Malibu. I guess it was really before that where the divided highway is up the coast. You know where the cliffs are? Yeah, we know. Well, we stopped. She was such a beautiful night. I just wanted to sit there and look at the ocean. People don't take time anymore. What happened then? We just sat there, had a cigarette, and talked. That's when I told her. First time I ever said it. What was that? It's funny. I guess most fellas say it a lot. You know how I mean to a bunch of girls that never mean it. Go ahead. I told her. First time I said I loved her, and I told her that she didn't have to get a job, that I wanted to marry her and get her a house and all, and she wouldn't have no more trouble at home. How she'd have her own home and everything would be all right. I told her all that. Yeah. And that's when I knew right then. You could divide the second in a million parts, and in one of them, one of the parts, I knew I had to do it. Kill her? Yeah. You see, she didn't tell me the real reason. She lied to me, and I knew I had to do it. So she wouldn't lie to anyone else. You can understand that. You can see why I had to do it. Well, maybe you better tell us. Well, it was all a lie, all about the family being mean to her. All that was a lie. She just wanted to get to Los Angeles because she wanted to meet some other fella here. That's why. She lied about the family, and that's why she did it. So, you see, I had to kill her. I had to. How'd you kill her? Huh? I say, how did you kill her? We got out of the car and walked over to the cliffs. We could see right down to the ocean. We just stood there. I just hit her. She fell down. It was quiet. So I pushed her over into the water. Mm-hmm. What'd you do then, Marcus? I got in the car and drove home. You just left her there, huh? Certainly. There wasn't anything I could do for her. You point out the place where all this happened? Well, sure. It's up the coast where the highway's divided, north of Malibu. It's real easy to find. Anybody else around? You mean when I hit her? That's right. No, we were all alone. I didn't see anybody, just the two of us. All right, Marcus, you willing to give us a statement on all this? You mean what I just told you? Yeah. Well, sure. You want me to tell all about it again? We'll call in the stenographer. So you can write it down, huh? That's the idea. Well, sure. I'll tell her. Tell me something, Marcus. When did you get out of the hospital? I told you before. I was never in one. You guys sure make it tough, don't you? What's that? I came in here because I wanted to tell you about Lorraine. I wanted you to know so you wouldn't think it was my fault. That's all. So you wouldn't think it was my fault. And now you don't believe me. You think I'm just another crackpot trying to sell a phony story? You guys sure make it tough. We gotta be sure. Well, I'm telling you the truth. I want you to believe me. Yeah. I want you to believe me. And we're beginning to. A statement was taken from the suspect, and he was booked in at the main jail on a charge of suspicion of violation of Section 187 PC, murder. We sent a teletype to San Francisco, and we contacted Inspectors Ed Vandervoort and John O'Hare of Homicide Detail. We filled them in and asked that they check out the suspect's story on their end. We also asked that they send us all available information on the missing girl and that they check with her family and try to get a list of any known associates that she might have had in the Los Angeles area. Frank and I checked out of the office at 7.48 p.m. and we went home for the night. The following morning at 9.23 a.m., Inspector Vandervoort from San Francisco called back. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. When was that, Ed? Wait a minute. All right, yeah, I got it. How about friends down here? I say, how about friends down here? 
Hmm? Oh, I see. Well, it should be here this afternoon, then. Right. Yeah, we'll check them out. No, no, that's on the way. We put it in the mail for you last... Well, you should have it by now, then. Okay, right. Right, Ed, thanks very much. We'll be checking with you. Right. Bye. How about it? Well, they checked the family and the friends, the place where Marcus said he stayed up there. Yeah. Marcus' story checks out all the way. You are listening to Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action. March 30th, 1954, Dragnet on Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. Now back to Dragnet for March 30th, 1954 on Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. In the phone conversation, we learned that all of Lorraine Farrell's friends and relatives had been interviewed and their stories checked with the one given us by the suspect, Marcus. The girl and Paul Marcus had been seen together in the Bay City. The desk clerk at the hotel where the suspect had stayed verified the date that he'd checked out. It was the same day Lorraine Farrell disappeared. The officers in San Francisco were able to contact the girl the suspect had referred to as Grace. She recalled seeing a man answering Marcus' description with the missing Farrell girl. Frank and I spent the rest of the day checking on the suspect. We talked to the people he worked with. They described Marcus as being moody and withdrawn. We talked with his landlady. Her description of the suspect's attitude was the same that we'd gotten before. We thoroughly searched Marcus's apartment, and in a desk drawer, we found a loose-leaf notebook with several pages of penciled notes describing the trip that he'd taken up to San Francisco. On one of the pages, at the back of the book, we found a lengthy letter to a Lorraine, in which Marcus apologized to the girl for killing her, but he went on to explain that he had no choice. We booked this evidence. The following morning, Friday, September 10th, Frank and I drove down to the beach and we talked to the people in the vicinity where the suspect said the murder had occurred. We found an elderly couple who lived in a trailer on the beach. They recalled having seen two people answering the description of the suspect and the missing girl on the night that the murder occurred. We drove back to the main jail and we signed out Marcus. We took him down to the car and we drove him out to the beach. We turned up the highway and told him to let us know when we came to the place where he killed the feral girl. You sure you know where the place is, Marcus? Yeah, I remember. It's just up the road a little bit. Just keep right on going. You'll find it. Mm-hmm. You'll see it now. There's kind of a parking place and a couple of trees. Eucalyptus, I think. There's two of them on the side of the parking place. You can't miss them. It's right ahead there on the left. There, you see? Yeah. I'm going to pull in, Frank. Okay. Just look at all those cars. Everybody's in such a hurry, they never see anything, just like they had blinders on. You sure this is the place? I told you, didn't I? No reason to say a thing like that if it wasn't true. Just pull right in there. That's it, right over there. Well, right here is where I parked when it happened. Maybe over there a little bit more, but... Oh, right about here. And the two of you just sat here for a few minutes, is that it? Yeah. We just sat here and had a cigarette, then we got out of the car and walked over to the edge of the cliff. All right, come on. Show us. Sure. So you'll believe me, I'll show you. Now we stood right over there. Right there, and I told her I was in love with her and wanted to marry her. Now you stay here. Just point out where you were. You think I might try to jump off, don't you? That's what you think, isn't it? You just show us, huh? Wouldn't do that. There's no reason to. I don't know why you wouldn't agree that I had to do it. I didn't have any other way to do it. Where were you when you hit her? Right there, near that clump of grass. We stood there and looked down at the ocean, and she told me about this other guy. That's when I hit her. She fell down right about, well, right about there. Uh-huh. And where'd you push her off the cliff? There, right where I hit her. She was lying there. I guess she hit her head on something, and she was real quiet. I just rolled her over the edge. It was right there. There, you see where the rocks are kind of worn? One take a look. Yeah. 
No, you wait here. Gee, if I'd have known it was going to be this hard to get it straightened out, I don't think I'd have started the thing. When am I going to get out of jail? That isn't up to us. Well, then I want to talk to the people who it's up to. I got to tell them about Lorraine, how she lied to me and why I had to kill her. As soon as they hear the story, they'll understand. They got to realize that there wasn't any other way. How's it look? Well, I found this cot in the branch just over the edge. No, it's a girl's handkerchief. Read the name on it. Mm. Lorraine. Friday, September 10th, 3.46 p.m. We contacted the crime lab and asked them to come out and go over the scene. Officers stood by so that any physical evidence would not be disturbed until Lieutenant Lee Jones and his men had an opportunity to go over it. Frank and I, along with the suspect, drove back to town where we made arrangements with the city lifeguard service to search for the body. The following morning, a boat equipped with diving gear left Santa Monica Harbor and took a course north. Experienced deep-sea divers searched the crevices in the rocks beneath the cliffs. All of the sea bordering the vicinity was gone over. There was no trace of a body. The shoreline on either side of the murder spot was checked. Still no trace of the missing girl. In the meantime, two additional teams of men were assigned to check out the friends of Lorraine Farrell. They carried pictures of Paul Marcus and attempted to dig out any information on the suspect and the missing girl. 6.42 p.m., Sunday. We called the main jail and asked that the suspect be brought to the city hall for additional questioning. I had a reason to do what I did, a good reason. Now, you let me talk to the responsible people around here and I'll have them tell you. I'm getting a little tired of being shoved around. You just bring in the boss and let me talk to him. What day did you say that you left San Francisco? September 1st. I thought it was the 2nd. The 1st. You said you left in the afternoon, is that right? In the morning, and you remember it. I don't know what all these questions are for. I told you I killed Lorraine. I walked in here and told you there's no reason for all this McGillah. Just no reason. Where'd you hide the body? I didn't hide it. Well, then where is it? I told you I put her in the ocean. We haven't been able to find her. Well, then you're not looking good. I told you the truth all along the line. I've told you the truth. You sure you didn't make a mistake about where all this happened? Not a chance in the world. Right there by the parking place where the two trees are. Well, maybe you just thought you left her there. I know it. Had you been drinking when you killed her? No. We stopped and had a couple of beers on the way. Just a couple, not enough to get drunk. But you did have something to drink. Well, sure, but not enough to get drunk on. How many beers do you have? Two, maybe three. All right, which was it? Two or three. Well, what difference does it make? Were you drunk? No. How about the girl? Was she drunk? No. You sure about that? Yes, yes, I'm sure. What are you trying to do? What difference does it make? Maybe we did have more than a couple, but what difference does it make? We're just trying to get things straight. We want to be sure we got the right story. Well, you have. Really? How about a cigarette, huh? Yeah, thanks. Frank? Yeah, thanks. Here, I got a match. Hey, wait a minute. Don't light his, too. That's bad. What do you mean? Three on a match. It's bad. It is, isn't it? Well, sure, you never do that. Here. Thanks. You got right home after you killed the Farrell girl, huh? Yeah. I drove right down the highway and went home. Traffic was kind of heavy. I thought about it. All those people all hurrying around, not taking any time. Anybody see you when you came home? What do you mean? Well, anybody see you park the car, go into your apartment? Well, no, there wasn't anybody around. Now, you said when you met the girl up in San Francisco that she had a suitcase with her. Is that right? Yeah, she did. Artificial leather with uh, with real leather binding. Where is it now? Huh? What'd you do with her suitcase? Well, I don't know. I don't remember it. We couldn't find it in your room. Well, you didn't have no right to go through my room. No right at all. The conclusion of Dragnet from March 30th, 1954, along with a wrap-up of the Lamar matter of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, follows these important words from your favorite station. You're listening to Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. Thanks for tuning in. Now on Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox, the conclusion of Dragnet and the Big Confession, March 30th, 1954. 
We didn't find the suitcase. Where is it? Well, I don't know. Did you put it with the body? Well, I might have. Where? I don't know. I don't remember. I hit her. She lied to me, and I hit her. And I pushed her into the ocean. That's all I know. And that's all I'm going to tell you. Joan, see you in a minute. Yeah, sure. What do you got, Al? We found the girl. Where? She's sitting in the squad room. Frank stayed with the suspect in the interrogation room, and I went with Sergeant Al Olivas up to the office. Sitting at one of the tables was a small girl with jet black hair. As we came into the room, she was putting on lipstick. She glanced over at us, and then she went back to what she was doing. There wasn't any doubt about it. The girl in the squad room was Lorraine Farrell. She dyed her hair, and she had on a lot of makeup. But it was the missing girl. Joe, this is Miss Farrell. Joe Friday. How do you do? Hi. Where'd you find her, Al? Friend out in Eagle Rock. Says she's been there for a week. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Al. Right. You seen the papers lately, Miss Farrell? Yeah, I read the funnies. You ought to read the front page. You've been on them. All right. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of policemen out looking for you. They probably needed the exercise anyway. There's a man down the hall who thinks that he killed you. That creep, Paul? Yeah, Paul Marcus, that's his name. Real creep. I was glad to get away from him. Oh, gosh, he tried to give me about our home. What a baloney. He's a real creep. You ought to keep an eye on him. He's going to wig one of these days. Is that so? Yeah. He drove me down here, and when I told him I didn't want to have anything to do with him, he got real sore, started yelling. Creep. Where'd all this happen, miss? Out by Malibu. Rode out there. Stopped the car and gave me all the stuff about wanting to marry me. I was in love with me. Big deal. Said I was the first girl I ever said that to. Big deal. What happened then? I told him I didn't want no part of him. Told him to get lost. Thanked him for the ride and told him to get lost. He flipped. Bad, he flipped. I took off. Got a ride, came into the town. I got this girlfriend, Eagle Rock. I've been out there. You ought to watch that guy, though. Mm-hmm. How old did you tell him that you were? I don't know. Forget. I think 19, something like that. Forget. Mm-hmm. He confessed to killing me, huh? That's right. Flipped. He's a wig. Let's take a walk, huh? Where? Come on. Sure. I got nothing to lose. Uh, can you guys drive me back to Eagle Rock tonight? I got a date. I got to be back pretty quick. You're not going to go back to Eagle Rock. Who says so? We're going to have to hold you. For what? I haven't done anything. Well, you're a minor. We've got a missing report filed on you. Your folks are pretty worried. Uh, they're always worrying about something. There ain't nothing for them to worry about, then they worry about that. Well, it doesn't make any difference. We're going to have to hold you. You just try it, cop. You just try it. You'll find out you got more trouble than you came in one lump. Uh-huh. In here. This is Lorraine Farrell, Officer Smith. Hello. Lorraine. Hi, creep. I, I didn't mean to do it. You know that. I didn't really mean to do it, but there wasn't any other way. What's playing? You know what he's talking about? He thinks he killed you. Wait. I didn't think I'd ever see you again. I didn't think I would. But I want you to know one thing, Lorraine. What's that? I forgive you for lying. I told you it happened. Yeah, come on. Where to? We'll take you to the office and call a policewoman. Then to the can, huh? The juvenile hall. Come on, let's go. I'll take her job, Brian. Bye, Paul. Bye, Lorraine. I'm not mad at you anymore. You know, I was worried. Sergeant? Yeah. I want you to know how I appreciate it. Yeah, what's that? What you tried to do, I think was real fine, thanks. I don't know what you mean. You didn't fool me a bit. Huh? I know I killed her. The story you've just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On October 4th, the hearing was held in Department 98, Superior Court, State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. Paul Nelson Marcus was held to answer a charge of violation of Section 701 WIC, contributing to the delinquency of a minor. 
After due deliberation, he was placed on probation and delivered into the hands of a competent psychiatrist. Lorraine Jean Farrell was returned to the custody of her parents. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Herb Ellis. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. March 30th, 1954, Dragnet on Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. Now it's time for the wind-up, part five of a yours truly Johnny Dollar story, The Lamar Matter. This episode of yours truly Johnny Dollar originally broadcast March 30th, 1956. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. This is Larry Comstock, Johnny, at Tri-Mutual Insurance. You're out at the Lamar home. Yeah, Larry. Police crime lab, find out anything more about the stuff from here they took in for examination? Yes, yes, they certainly did. Well... They found traces of that poison, pyrodameron, on the toothbrush that Thomas Lamar was using just before he on died. To- Are you kidding? Oh, no. No, indeed, John. Not a bit. There's a murder weapon for you, a toothbrush. Larry, send the cops out here. I think I've just about got this case sewed up. <laughs> Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey and the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. (laughs) Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar, location South Bend, Indiana. To the Universal Adjustment Bureau, Hartford, Connecticut... The following is my final entry of expenses incurred during investigation of the Lamar murder. And murder it most certainly was. It was in La Jolla, California, during my so-called vacation, that I met, and I must admit, kind of fell for Vonnie Lamar. It was from La Jolla that I flew her back to South Bend, Indiana, when we both received news of her foster father's sudden death. All the clues I'd been able to dig up seemed to point to one Walter Marson who had been Lamar's personal secretary and who lived at the Lamar mansion. At his room there in the house, I found the one book in the world that described the poison, pyridamarin, that had killed Thomas René Lamar. Poison derived from a pretty little yellow flower once raised on an island near Greece. A flower with sudden death in its pollen. Huh? You're Johnny Dollar, aren't you? Harrison the butler said you were up here. And you must be Walter Marston. What, uh, what are you doing in my room? Let me ask the questions, Marston. Now, just a minute. Look, mister, you may as well know it. I'm an insurance investigator. So Harrison said, but I don't believe it. Right here, my credentials. Uh-huh. Oh, I, I see, but I, I thought... You it... thought I was just a boyfriend that Vonnie Lamar met in La Jolla and who just came back here with her to comfort her over the loss of her father. Yes, yes, that's right. Well, you were wrong, mister, or partly so. The main reason I'm here is to find out who murdered Thomas Lamar and Why? And I think I found out. You have? Well, well, who, Mr. Dollar? Interesting book you've been reading here. Oh. Flora Exotica Mediterranea. Stolen from the Central Library over in Chicago, wasn't it? Well, yes. Yes, it was. Found a poison in it, didn't you, Marston? Pyridameron. Deadly, quick, and hard to trace. 
So rare that the chances were pretty good it wouldn't even be recognized. But it was. Where'd you get it, Walter? As you said, at the library. I'm talking about the poison, the pirate Dameron that killed Thomas Lamar. Oh, no, no, no. You're, you're all wrong. Am I? Who besides Vani would benefit from the million and a half insurance on Lamar's life? Well, what made you think that... that I know that you I'd would. Be the... Because I know you're married to Vani. Oh, no. You tried I, to inveigle I... your way into Lamar's business, but he wouldn't have it. All your chiseling and conniving and phony stock transactions got you nowhere. So you did the next thing you could think of. You got something on Vani and forced her to marry you. So you thought you'd at least be sure of a big hunk of the insurance money over my dead oh, body. Oh, no, look, Dollar, maybe I was yeah, married to sure, Vani, but... I found out about her big gambling debts, got her off the hook by some fancy manipulation of her foster father's investments. No doubt threatened to tell him all about it unless she did marry you and thereby guaranteed yourself a prosperous future. Oh, and you timed the whole thing beautifully when she was emotionally upset over the death of Mrs. Lamar. No, Dolly, you, you don't know but what you're talking about. Couldn't wait for him to die a natural death. <sighs> Dolly. Mr. Dollar. Sure, go ahead, speak up and make it good. Well, I, uh, I was married to Vani. But I'm not now. Sure. That's right. I did want a place in Lamar Metal Products, and I thought I could get it by showing Mr. Lamar how clever I was. <laughs> well, instead of throwing me out, he gave me another chance. I'll be forever grateful to him. It was a turning point in my life. I give you my word, Mr. Dollar, I've done nothing since that time that's been anything but completely honest and above board. Pretty speech. No, no, it, it's true. It's it's true, I swear it. Nevertheless, you married Vani in the hope We're that... We're divorced. You're... You're what? Well, it was the only honorable thing I could do. Would you like to see the final papers? Vani mailed them to me from Reno before she went to La Jolla. You mean she... Yeah, let me see them. Here. My... Yes. Don't try to pull a gun out of there, Marcel. You still don't believe me, do you? Yeah. Hmm. Then would you like to tell me who did murder Thomas Lamar? I wish to heaven I knew. That's why I got this book, hoping to find some clue as to where the pirate Dameron might have come from. But you sneaked this book out of the because library. Because I was afraid of the very kind of suspicion that you've shown. Want to know something? I'm still showing. And I tell you, you're wrong. A a ask Vani. She'll tell you. Oh, where is she? Harrison said you two had gone out together to make arrangements for the funeral. Yes, we did, and we came back together. But when Harrison told her that you were here to see her, she... Well, she, she said she'd be back in a few minutes. Where did she go? Oh, she's still in the house somewhere, I, I think. Marson, just what is your relationship with Vani now? Well, there never was any love between us. Our marriage was only on paper. Yeah? As the foster daughter of the man to whom I owe so much, it's my duty to do what I can for her. In spite of her... Remember what? Oh, even to the end, we, we kept from him any knowledge of her dissipations, her drinking and gambling. I thought that was all over. Oh, no, she's more deeply in debt now than she's ever been. I'm I'm thankful Mr. Lamar died without knowing what I'll be. But with the insurance, of course, you'll be able to pay off. Marson, you're a dirty rat, and your accusation isn't very well veiled. Are you trying to say that I'm accusing Vani of the... Murder? Oh. Mr. Dollar. Yeah, go on. This book. According to this, the plant from which Pilot Dameron is derived is now extinct. Unless somebody, somewhere, managed to salvage some seeds that were yes, then planted. Yes, exactly. 
Well, for a purpose, calendars found only on a small Grecian island. I... I wonder if Dimitri would know about... Dimitri? What's this sudden switch? Who's Dimitri? He's the old gardener. He's, he's here on the estate. Come on, Marson, and bring that book. Before going out to the gardener's cottage, I asked Harrison where Vani had gone, and he told us he only knew that she was somewhere in the grounds, that her car was still in the driveway. I phoned Larry Comstock again, but he'd left his office, presumably to come out here. And I called the man I'd talked to earlier at the library. Of course I can. As I told you before, I keep a very close check on the books in that section. Uh, let me see now. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Flora Exotica Mediterranea has only been out four or five times in the past several years. Once to a Mr. Thomas... Yeah? Uh, uh, Thomas Hanley. Oh. Uh, to a Mr. Ralph Cummings, Miss Levon Lamar, and... Uh, That's enough. Thanks. I tried not to show Marston how I felt as we walked out to the cottage of Dimitri, the old gardener. Could be nothing too nice for Mr. Lamar. So I always try to keep things nice. Yeah, I can see. Uh, Dimitri, Mr. Dollar's here to, to investigate the circumstances of Mr. Lamar's death. Investigate? Oh, yes. I hope you find who do this terrible thing to such a fire. Well, I want you to look at this book. Here. Did you ever see a flower like that? Oh, yes. Yes, where? In old country. In Greece it used to be, but no more. You never saw it in this country? No, yes. Well, which is it? Uh, I should not say, because in old country it's against the law. I don't know why. Well, I do. Go on, Dimitri. But I keep many of my nice seeds anyway. And some of them were for this flower? Yes. You, you don't mind? It is very pretty flower. Did you ever plant any of them? Oh, no, no, not I. Somebody else? She was always so nice to me. Bonnie? Miss Lamar? <laughs> Look, sir. She even sent me gift on her trip last week. Dimitri. Look, look. You call it toilet case. See? It have soap and toothbrush and comb. Dollar. Dollar, look, look. That, that toothbrush. I am looking. The yellow stain on the bristles, the same color as the flower on this deadly plant. So, so pretty. She said her father one of these two are... Oh, Dollar, I'm sick. You sick, poor so man? So crude, so corny, and so obvious it would never be noticed. And she was safely a couple of thousand miles away, beyond any possible suspicion when the... Dimitri, yes. did she plant any of these seeds you gave her? She often plants many kinds. Where? Show us. In the morning, maybe. It's getting pretty dark now. Now, now, now. Come on. Come on, Marcin. Yeah. You, you must not tell her, I show you. She always keep her little garden secret. She not even think I know. She very sweet girl. Yeah, very. But now... You know, oh. Oh, wait. She there now, cultivating. Cultivating? With a shovel? Dimitri, go back to your cottage and stay there. Oh, you want... Come on, Marson. She's, she's digging. Digging. And I think I know why. She sees us. Go back. Go away, both of you. Stay here. I want to talk to you, Vani. What are you doing? What I'm doing is... I'm burying the little garden that was mine for Daddy. Little personal things, Johnny, that I grew with my own hands for him alone. 
Now that he's gone, this would be only one more bit of memory. Please, leave me, Johnny, to finish. Wait, Bonnie. What? Before you turn under that little yellow flower. Here, I'll show you. No, Johnny, don't touch it. Here. Source of a poison called pyridamarin. How did you know? Here, look. Oh, no, you don't. I'll kill you, too. I'll kill you. Oh, nobody, no. Oh, Walter. Walter, help me. Help you, help you. Johnny was in love with me, but I turned him down, and he he came out here. Oh, good, Bonnie. I hate you. I hate you both. Everything would have been all right if you hadn't come along. I hate you. I... Listen, Johnny. Million dollars. Million and a half. You and I could... You dirty... No, Johnny, please don't. Please! <sighs> Believe me, this is one case I wish I'd never seen. Oh, sure, you, the company, are all right. You won't have to pay off a million and a half in insurance. Your gain. But me, I've lost something. Faith. Faith in... I'm sick over the whole thing. Expense account, I'll add it up later. Right now, I'm going out and get roaring... Get some flowers. Some clean flowers. And just sit and look at them. Yours truly... Johnny Dollar. Now here's our star to tell you about next week's exciting story. Next week? Tell me, did you ever wake up from a pleasant dream to find a smoking gun in your hand and two bodies at your feet? Well, I have. Join us next week and I'll tell you about it. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, is transcribed in Hollywood. It is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone, who also wrote this week's story. Heard in the cast were Virginia Gregg, Lawrence Dobkin, Harry Bartell, Eric Snowden, Howard McNair, John Daner, Gene Tatum, Joseph Kearns, Paul Richards, and Jack Moyles. Musical supervision by Amerigo Marino. Be sure to join us on Monday night, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, Roy Rowan speaking. I got two separate private messages this week from people who have said that uh, they were not a yours truly Johnny Dollar fan until they started listening and uh, listening regularly. And now they say they're hooked. Yours truly Johnny Dollar, March 30th, 1956 on Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. If you want to build your own classic collection... Go to my webpage, classicradio.stream. We give you some hints on how to get some shows for free, where good prize places are to get other shows that you have to pay a little bit of money for, but you'll be amazed. Uh, you can find that at classicradio.stream. You can also hear all of our shows on demand there, in addition to at iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Tune in, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Amazon. If you miss a day, you do not have to miss a single episode. Of course, we want you to listen to this station because they're the folks that are the main reason we're here. 
Uh, but you can look at all those places. Search for Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. That's Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox. And please take the time to thank this radio station and support their advertisers. It is their kindness and courtesy that allows us to be with you each and every time we roll around here on your favorite station. And please tell all your friends the great radio shows are right here at this spot on the dial. Classic Radio Theater with Wyatt Cox on your favorite radio station.